Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 19, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for today's meeting. The share ID for Friday, January 17th, is 5786. Many people consider the program of recovery, the 12 Steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched, transformed by the 12 Steps. The secret of these 12 Steps is that in spite of all odds, it is possible to be able to effectuate such dramatic change, a transformation in personality, in character, and in values. What is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Joining us this morning to speak on this special edition entitled, It's a Miracle, is Larry. Larry is a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago who is dedicated to carrying this message of recovery, this message of hope. And it is with great pleasure that I turn the meeting over to you, Larry, this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Leah. Thanks so much for uh, for giving me the opportunity to kind of share with the group this morning. Um, a miracle, indeed. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a miracle. God, you know, continues to show me the miracles. You know, I used to think miracles were, uh, you know, that wasn't for me. That was, uh, you know, you win the lottery. Boy, what a miracle. You, uh, you know, some, something, something profoundly life, you know, in a profound way that it alters one's life, and uh, you know, you beat cancer. That's a miracle. Yeah, these, these are miracles. But I, I see the subtleties in the small miracles today. Matter of fact, I, <clears throat> I picked up. I, you know, just because I'm sharing this morning, it doesn't take me out of my daily routines. I have to eat my absolute breakfast. I get on my knees in the morning and and I pray. Um, I read my literature. Uh, it doesn't matter what day it is, what calamity is in my life, what beautiful things are in my life. Um, I do what I did the day before that has brought me recovery by the grace of God. And, um, and so I'm going to share a little bit with you. And so this morning, I was in the, you know, one of the books I read, The Voices of Recovery, a Daily Reader from Overeaters Anonymous, January 19th, if I have the right date. Uh, January 19th. So I, I read it. I put my hand in yours, and together, um, I was alone, and I knew it. I was, I was, and am an odd duck, intelligent. I don't know, perhaps, um, yet lacking common sense and tact. I was angry at God. I felt cursed. I ate, and ate, and ate. Then came the miracle of program. It's funny how God throws these things at me, uh, just at the right time. There, my weaknesses were assets. They made me a member, amazing. I felt understood for the first time. That was the beginning with compulsive eaters. I daily put the food down uh, and walked the walk of recovery. I reached out my hand, knowing that together we we could do what we could never do alone. In the rooms of OA, I learned the lesson of the AA pioneers. There is a God, and I'm not God. In those rooms, I gradually experienced all the promises the big book described. 
that indeed was the case for me. I'm going to share a bit about that this morning. In those rooms, I'm home. Today and every day, I'm grateful to the God of my understanding that I was desperate enough to reach out and blessed enough to find the hand of OA reaching back. Wow, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, never, never ceases to amaze me, the small miracles, the little things. See, I see the, the miracles, miracles were always around me. I just was, I didn't see them. It wasn't my fault. I, you see, I, I really intended to see them. I wanted to be hopeful, but this disease, uh, it got a hold of me good. It, it whipped me good. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just about food. It was about life, and I'm going to share a bit about that. Food was one of the manifestations, but, you know, it was about life. Um, you know, I read miracle, you know, the, the, the word miracle, you know, it's kind of, uh, by definition, a surprising and welcome event not explainable by natural or scientific laws of nature and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. You know, wonder, marvel, sensation, mystery. These were all, this was a very mysterious notion for me, you know, a man of, that I'd like to believe of science. Divine, believed to be caused by the power of God. A very amazing or, or unusual event. One I like this one. One that excites admiring awe. It does it does that for me today, but not not the day that I walked in the room. Uh, the rooms so I was I was broken down. I like when Leia and others talk about with tombstones in my eyes. I'm going to share a little bit about my history because I I don't I need to remember the past. I, I live in the present, you know, no doubt. This is all I have. Past is gone. Future's not here. No guarantees. But I have a mind that can think in the past and the present and future. That was also a gift from God. So I, I don't regret the past, and I, and I revisit the past. Uh, I read my journal. I was reading this morning, first day I walked into the rooms. You know, I read, uh, you know, uh, I was perplexed, frustrated, angry, confused. Most of all, I was hungry. <laughs> I mentioned that like about three or four times in that very first entry when I came into the rooms of OA. About five years ago, it wasn't that long ago by some standards, but I'll tell you, the transformation that I've experienced, it's unmistakable. And people see it in me, too. It's kind of neat uh, that they see it, you know, because, you know, people can see hypocrisy. They can see the parent that says, don't do this, don't, you know, don't do drugs, and then they go out and, you know, second, third, fourth martini and every night and so forth. But, you know, we can see congruence, can we not? We can see congruence. You know, walking the walk is another way of saying congruent. And my, uh, the values by which I'm, you know, try to live. You know, am I, if you were to follow me around, am I really living that life? Today, indeed, I am. Larry, star one to unmute. Hi, Leah. Is that in my back? You are. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> my pleasure. Um, Dr. Silk was said, uh, uh, in, in, you know, in the doctor's opinion, you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. He was talking about the first 100. Um, you know, they had an entire absence of profit motive, a community spirit, you know, and, um, you know, what I would say with some hesitancy, but I, but I really believe this, you can rely absolutely on anything I say about myself. It's just my truth. It is indeed what happened. It is a miracle in my life. 
You know, for me, um, I, I came to believe in a power greater than myself that dragged me from the gates of death. I'm going to share that with you. Freed me from the prison. It was a prison. It was a horrible prison of my physical cravings. And, uh, and, the, and the travesty, the absurdity of life as I was living it. Um, you know, what I can say, you know, about, uh, about um, you know, my past is I, I want to spend a few minutes sharing with you about the, how the disease had manifested itself in my life and how it progressively tightened its noose around my neck, how it eventually beat me up and spit me out over and over again. I, I use those terms. It might, it might sound, you know, a bit sensationalistic, but that, that's what it felt like. You know, I wasn't living life. I was the walking dead. I was a zombie in many, many, many ways. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna share one thing with you, and then I'll go back and kind of you know share some thoughts about the beginning and what it was like for me, what happened, and, and what it's like today. Um, but I'm gonna first start with uh, when I when I uh, when I almost died, and uh, it didn't involve food, uh, but but it it it, it, it was a, it was an interesting uh, occurrence. When I was 19 years of age. Um, I was driving to pick up my parents, uh, my mother and my stepfather, actually, from uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago. It was, it was uh, close to midnight. They were taking a red-eye flight in, and I, uh, and, and I was driving, you know, and um, uh, I didn't have my seatbelt on. And the timing was perfect. Perfect now. I, mean, I didn't view it that way, but it was perfect because the trajectory of my life started, you know, started to turn with, with this period of time. The, uh, the timing was perfect because a drunk driver was on his way just as I was on my way. And going 70 miles an hour, he hit my car and I was spit out of, catapulted out of my car through the windshield, the side windshield, the, side, the, the passenger uh, window. And, that, and he was going, 70, the reason I know he was going 70 miles an hour, see, I know because it was reported in all the newspapers because this gentleman was at an outdoor concert and had left drunk, you know, inebriated. He was riding with his lights off on the wrong side of the road when he, when he hit me. I was just going through a, a normal light. But the reason it was in the news um, was that he had run over and killed a young Purdue student um, that was working on, uh, like, security parking. And that's why it was in the news. I never lost consciousness. I... I uh, I, 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 it's, it's amazing to say. It's almost unbelievable to say, but that's just the truth. And I, the car was obliterated. I was, you know, I was brought to the hospital, and I was actually released that night. I, I know it sounds unbelievable, but it's factual. I mention that because um, I did, you know, I, I was supposed to die on that night, perhaps, or supposed to live. I didn't have any spiritual transformation at that point. The disease continued to have its grip on me, but it is part of my history. If I go back, uh, you know, I'll tell you that my family, you know, kind of a middle-class family, um, you know, I remember, you know, one of my first recollections was baby aspirin uh, story with chuckles that my parents told. But I, I remember it very clearly at three or four years of age. I, I, I can place myself there like a movie today. And I remember um, waiting in a very devious way, <laughs> even at that age, for my parents to leave the kitchen, uh, they, you know, I probably they'd given me the baby aspirin before that candy, and it just it had an effect on me, and I waited till they weren't in the kitchen, and I climbed up. See, they kept it in the counter, uh, excuse me, the cabinet above 
the refrigerator, you know those, those, those two, one or two cabinets right above the refrigerator, for a three or four year old to get to that, I had to do some climbing. And I, had, and I waited until there was no one in the kitchen and I got to that baby aspirin. There was not shot up, you know, protective caps back then. And I proceeded to eat that candy, eat the whole bottle of that candy, you know, perhaps uh, 50, 60, you know, like it was Pez. And I just remember, you know, my mother coming in there frantic, crying. You know, she saw the empty bottle. She saw me. I don't know that I was convulsing or anything, but, I mean, she saw what I did. And her and, her, and my father rushed me. I just remember being sitting in my mom's lap without a seatbelt. They were rushing me to the, to the hospital, and I had my stomach pumped. Um, all I wanted was that feeling, that taste, that, that ease and comfort. I remember it then. Um, you know, from there, um, I can remember something else that sticks in my mind just to, you know, part of this is identifying in. And, uh, when I was, you know, perhaps around seven or eight, there was a sleepover at a friend's house and it was, it was, um, it was electrifying. The electrifying part of it for me really was that I learned about toast Wonder Bread toast and mayonnaise. I might as well have learned about heroin. And I'm not kidding. We, see, he became disinterested in it, you know, after, you know, one or two slices. I proceeded to eat about about seven or eight slices, and then I snuck down there at this, 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 <laughs> this friend's home to make more toast in the middle of the night with mayonnaise. I couldn't stop myself even at that age. There was something different about me. I didn't lose uh, interest, and you know. And, and, and today we would describe that indeed the twofold nature of the disease, the allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Well, no, no doubt. Even though unbeknownst to me then, that's in, indeed it was setting in. I remember uh, I share with you my father, uh, now long since retired, a pharmacist, and he uh, he had a little small mom and pop shop uh, pharmacy store in the in the city of Chicago. Waveland and Cicero Avenue, for those of you who know uh, Chicago, kind of the Wrigleyville area, and a small place. You know, the, the entire store probably wasn't bigger than a, than a good-sized living room, dining room area. But he had, uh, you know, his little pharmacy area, and he had dry goods and milk, and but he had that candy section. And for as long as he had that store, I would go in and I would steal candy bars, I would steal Hostess uh, things. The Hostess guy was my, my buddy. Um, I would steal bags of chips, you know, the kind that were probably a quarter then or 99 cents or a dollar today. And I would do it in a very devious fashion. I knew that it was somehow wrong to steal, but I, and I didn't, I wasn't a bad boy, you know, I, I just couldn't keep myself from it. And I would go down and I would dispose, I would go down into the, the storage area in the basement and, and hide those wrappers for fear that someone, I knew shame at that early age of about, eight, nine, ten. And uh, so I would, uh, I would continue to do that, and I did that for many years, and it got progressive. So, you know, and everything was a little bit bigger then. So, you know, one candy bar, one Kit Kat bar, one Snickers bar, it became two and three. It was never enough. There was something about, I do remember at the time, there was something, you know, that I, I never, it seemed that other people would get full, and I never would get full with, with those, those, those certain foods. Um, there was something going on there, that I, I and I noticed that uh, even back then. I was kind of an intuitive, analytical sort of kid, so I noticed it, but I didn't pay much attention to it. It continued to progress. Um, 
my parents, you know, there wasn't real sense of, of, of religion. There was a, you know, religion, you know, family kind of gatherings and family origin type stuff, but no real connection to any spiritual nature. That was for the crazy. I remember my stepfather, a very abusive, stepfather in a very volatile, abusive, both physically and verbally household. And he had a sister, and I just remember, it's one of my early recollections, that she uh, she was institutionalized, and she found a God, apparently. And and uh, that was what I heard that, you know, the adults talking about. And they thought she was absolutely off her rocker nuts. You know, and that was what I what I got. And yet, you know, my mother, we respected people of all origins, races, you know, gender, everything, but, but yet someone that believed in, 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 you know, hocus pocus, a man in the sky, if you will, that was a crazy person. So that was kind of the picture that I got. And even though we later moved to a community where there was a lot of my friends, you know, through, you know, middle school, junior high, high school that were, actually, I, I noticed their families would go to church together and I started to get a little bit interested in that, but but the disease continued to to get a, to, to have its grip on me, and um, and I remember through high school, I'll share a story. I, I don't think that anyway, there are people on the line that have similar stories and much worse. Um, I remember one of my very first jobs was a, a day camp counselor, a very popular day camp in my community. And parents loved it. And it was the primo job for, you know, a sophomore in high school because, you know, the girls, you know, it's kind of like the popular group, you know, that we did get, I mean, crazy thinking notions now so many, many years later. But that was a great job. We, they should, we should have paid them. Our parents should have paid us counselors to be there, you know, but they, they paid us minimum wage or something. And, and we had a group, you know, each, there was many, many different groups, both boys and girls groups of all different ages. And you'd have about 15 kids in your group, two counselors. Um, you know, I was a sophomore. My fellow, you know, lead counselor was a senior. We were kids ourselves, of course. And they would equip each, the kids would come in the morning with their sack lunches and they would put them, we would have a laundry basket, every group would, you know, marked, you know, like sixth grade boys or something. They'd put their bags in the, uh, their bags, their lunch bags in the basket and, and then I would take it, you know, a counselor would take it down, I would be sure to take it down to the storage um, uh, room that we had. I mean, this is a big, it was like a storage building that we'd, we'd put the, the, the baskets in. And, and retrieve them at lunchtime. Well, you can imagine that, um, you know, I would go down and sneak down and I would have no shame in digging in those lunches, taking kids, you know, the foods that their parents had prepared for them, you know, particularly the sugary dessert items and the, the, the salty, savory, crunchy stuff, you know, and I had no shame and uh, no sense of, of moral direction. But certainly, I felt um, powerless over it. It was, you know, it had a pull on me, and I couldn't stop myself. I was no different than any addict at that point, and I knew it. And of course, I, I learned to lie, and I learned to uh, cover my tracks. So even back then, I was charming, <laughs> you know. I mean, in some sense, so I, you know, I could. I, I just didn't look the part that someone that would go do that sort of thing. And and uh, so maybe I came to believe that I, I didn't do it. You know, but I, I did, and um, and and the disease continued to tighten that noose around my neck. But it was still many years before I would uh, get desperate enough to get that gift of desperation. In uh, college, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, I had um, five other roommates for you know my undergrad at Eastern Illinois University, 
and I, I wrote for the Daily Eastern News. And that was fun about dormitory, this and that, and water leaks and you know whatever. And and uh, but with these roommates, we all had our, our our own little cabinet in the kitchen for our own food. And one of the guys, we were all the best of friends. He, his thing was he would he would get um, these blueberry pop tarts, you know, real cheap, and then like an all and and um and I would I could not keep myself out of those and we all had a separate area and I would eat those and then he would you know I mean he, he would you know who took my my blueberry pop tarts the first time it was kind of a chuckle chuckle no no everyone denied it including myself and then uh, I continued to do it I was a I was a compulsive overeater I continued to do it and um you know, three, four, five times, they, through the process of elimination, he figured out who did it. Well, one day I came home, you know, went into my bedroom, and I, I, I put my book bag down and sat down on my bed, and there in my bed was a gooey mess. He had smashed uh, like five to six blueberry Pop-Tarts into my sheets to send the message to me. You know, the shame that I had that he knew and everyone knew it wasn't a joke, you know, and, um, and and that's that's something that I remember. There were many many shameful types of episodes like that. You know, I did graduate undergrad later. You know, earned a master's degree, um, and uh, and eventually met you know uh, I met my my wife, my first of two, and the mother of my daughter. I have one daughter, eighteen. And uh, she she was terrific. Um, she was uh, she was not a compulsive overeater. She didn't understand. I remember an early date. I got uh, twelve pack of what they call Entenmann donuts. I don't know if you're familiar. And uh, she came. I was home, uh, and she came home, and I presented her on a beautiful napkin with one beautiful chocolate donut. And she was so what a sweet thing to do, you know. And she had it and she enjoyed it. And then a little while later, she's like, God, it was so good, you know. Uh, you could have another one? Well, of course, the 11 others I had eaten in about 10, 15 minutes. And uh, there was no, and that was, that was very shameful, you know, to admit that, uh, that I had, you know, I had done that. She, that was her first inclination that I had a problem with food. But I had a problem with life. I could, intimacy, both emotional and physical were challenges for me. Because the um, I had uh, you know I tried to I tried to really connect the dots you know because I was in I was in the social science field and learning and I tried to you know approach it from a from a you know as I was thinking about this just how my life was completely unmanageable and out of control I would try to think well you know psychotherapy you know construct and, and concepts would suggest that you know you peel away the layer of the onion you go back to the your childhood you get to the core of what was going on and you gain insight and through that insight and self-knowledge and processing of those, you know, those feelings and emotions, you're free, you know, you're free. You get to a healthier place. The theories are nice. Self-knowledge, uh, I knew then, but I have words for it now that I've learned in the program. Self-knowledge availed me a big fat zero, nothing. No amount of acknowledging, understanding, even looking for you know, the origin, you know, this one wronged me, that one. I mean, if you were abused as I was, if you were in the, uh, went through a windshield at the age of 19, if you were after all, wouldn't you, wouldn't it be justified that you would have tapped into some sort of addiction to make yourself feel better? 
maybe, maybe not, but it doesn't matter anymore. See, to me, self-knowledge avails me nothing. And I'll, and I'll get on to that in a little bit. My marriage was an abject, you know, it was an abject failure, my marriage. I couldn't form relationships. We became roommates really more than anything. Um, my best friend was food. I felt nothing. I only thought that I felt. You know, I felt nothing because the food served me in some way, and the way it served me was it uh, it allowed me to numb out all my feelings. And, uh, and over time, uh, you know, anytime I would feel a twinge of anxiety, because I would be prone to anxiety attacks and, and even later panic attacks, a much more severe form of anxiety as it manifested and as the disease progressed, um, food was the one thing that could give me even if it was for a minute, I would take it. Any sort of feeling, the highs and lows, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable with those. Too much joy would bring on anxiety for me. Too much exuberance, anxiety. I didn't like that feeling. I didn't want to feel much of anything, so the food served me in that way. My best friends, I used to say, were food and books. That was it, you know? And, and they were both illegal, so... No one, no one questioned. By the way, during that time, um, I, I looked okay because, because I was a compulsive, uh, I was an exercise bulimic. Um, I would run and lift weights and do all those things. And as long as my appearance looked normal, why, uh, you know, people would think I'm normal and I would convince them I'm normal. You know, in college, I had big muscles and all this kind of stuff. And, and despite the, the, you know, one fast food meal after another, one pizza after another, never having, you know, one slice of anything, one Oreo, one, none of that. It was always, I ate it until it was gone. If there was a package, I ate it. If there were two, I ate it. I was embarrassed and I felt ashamed that I could eat a box of cereal in, in five minutes. And I would unthinkingly, I, I just, I did those things and I was ashamed because I saw other people around me that occasionally overindulged, you see, occasionally they would, but then they'd become disinterested or they would, they would, they would have this thing that turned to me called getting full and then being done with it. And not me, there was nothing too rich, but I would continue to exercise. I later ran, um, the, the Chicago marathon. Uh, my wife commented at the time, uh, Wow, with all this training you're doing, your your weight seems to be going up. Well, she didn't know that I was going from one fast food restaurant to the next, one drive through the next, ordering for three and four people, literally, at a time, um, ordering from various pizza places. She, I, I never had a job that would require me to be somewhere from a nine to five type of arrangement because I could not practice my disease that way. I needed to have that time where I could go. And, and get my binge foods. Um, that that marriage ended. I I can share with you a story of the volatility that I, you know and, and and that I took this woman through. Um, there was one time I remember that we were driving to a family gathering. We had about a two-hour drive, and we were in a heated conversation about I don't know what something. And um, we we got off to get some gas, and when we got back on the interstate. Because we were in such a heated discussion, I got on going the wrong direction, and neither of us noticed it. And we proceeded to drive back the way we came for about an hour until we noticed. I was so furious when we figured it out. Of course, I transferred that blame onto her. 
and I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit today, but I don't regret the past because it's where I am today. We'll get to what happened and what it's like now that I, as I was driving back in the right direction, going, you know, probably 60, 65, could be 70 miles an hour. Just in my, in my anger and frustration, I held the wheel with my right hand and with my left hand, I just kind of punched the windshield in front of me. Spider webs. That windshield, you know, windshields don't shatter. They're shatterproof, but just that little punch with that force um, of, of frustration. And we looked at each other because we was completely spider webs on that windshield from end to end. And we looked at each other with our jaws wide open. Oh, my God. You know, and um, I have to say that, you know, that marriage went on. She was a saint, you know, in some ways that she she stuck with me for another three years. My daughter was born, more panic attacks, more binge eating, more volatility, more dishonesty, um, emotional relationships outside the marriage. Um, that, that's the person that I was. And um, and, and, and she, uh, but it floored me. <laughs> How interesting it floored me that when she came to me one early morning, I'm a morning guy, and, and she got up and said, you know, she wanted a divorce. I couldn't understand. What, what, why would anyone divorce me? <laughs> I mean, I didn't see it, right? Um, I then went through a serial dating period, um, you know, more practicing the disease. I remarried again, only to follow the same patterns. I tried everything. Um, I will share with you a couple of the things I tried. I mean, all the things that you all tried, I'm sure many of you. I mean, the pills, the uh, the different programs, the Jenny Craigs, the Weight Watchers, they all work, but none of them addressed, got down to causes and conditions and addressed any spiritual aspects, which to me are the foundation of, of why I'm able to continue to do this. Because I've done nothing. God has done it through me. I believe that. Um, but but I tried that. I threw away. I mean, I did uh, herbal life. I did, and and I and I'll tell you, I had five thousand dollars approximately for my first liposuction surgery, and I ate right sort of through that, if you will. And then two years later, I went back to the same, the same surgeon, and I said, "Do you think I, I think I could benefit from another liposuction surgery?" And he said, "He goes, yeah, I think so." He said, in fact, you know, it wouldn't be too bad. We can go through the same incisions we went the first time because all my weight was around my waist. You know, it was a typical guy. The legs weren't, you know, it was all around my waist. And I, and I was still engaged in compulsive exercise and day after day after day, two, three hours on the elliptical running, crazy insanity. Um, two liposuction surgeries, none of them worked. They needed to, really, they needed to remove the fat from my head, not my stomach. I'm a bit facetious, but that, that, that was what it is. And, and society kind of supports that. But I listen, nobody has nobody forced the food down my throat. As Leah said before, you know, it's in the big book. I mean, nobody forced me to do anything. I knew what I was doing. You know, at least I thought I did. And, uh, of course, those liposuction surgeries, $10,000, $12,000, none of that worked. The weight continued to pile on. And the disease continued to grip me. And choked me out until I got desperate enough. I was married again. This time, I left that person. 
She was a good woman. Um, she did the best she could, but she was living with an addict and uh, uh, verbally abusive. And But, again, someone that looked good on paper. By then I had my Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Can you imagine that I'm going out and I'm attempting to help other people? And I don't doubt that I had good intent and I, I tried my best and to practice, you know, those those things that I learned and, and, and um, you know, and, and all that stuff. So I, I, by most people that didn't know all the masks that I wore, you know, uh, in fact, I remember my first wife, her parents and everyone else, said, what are you doing, Sandy? How, why are you leaving him? Well, she kept it under like most, uh, most um, you know, families and, and significant others of, of addicts like that, they, they're ashamed too. They don't know what to do. They don't always talk to other people and their families and their fr- close friends. So no one could understand why this strapping, you know, <laughs> reasonably good-looking, you know, guy that had these degrees and seemed to be a nice enough guy. How, why, why would anyone leave him? Well, you know, when I was making my amends to Sandy, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, we, we could we could chuckle a bit and be honest about it, you know, about uh, that no one knew. And I'm so very grateful for her today because she's a fantastic mother. And, um, and, and we have, and we have a good repaired relationship today as a result of this program. So that's a little bit about, uh, I could share a lot more um, about my life. So what happened was then um, I, uh, I think I shared this in a vision for you meeting. I, um, I was working with a gentleman in, in counseling. He had been uh, he had been a, a heroin addict and alcoholic for 18 years, sober for 18 years. So why in the heck was he? Did he choose to see me? Uh, because he began to feel for the first time, and oddly enough, which I understand it experientially today, that you know, um, character defects aside, life happens on life's terms. People die. Um, you know, there's challenges in relationships, you know, there's all sorts of things. So he, he was seeing me on some of those issues and I was trying to identify in with him and he was questioning, you know, you know, if I could really identify with what that would be like as an addict. And I, I brought up that, well, maybe not. And, and alcohol's never had a pull on me. I could take it or leave it. But I said, but you know, I, I can really relate. Food has, you know, has its grip on me. And he, and he looked at me and he paused with a smile I'll never forget. And he said, he goes, oh, he goes, that's interesting. He goes, they, they have something called, I think they call it Overeaters Anonymous, another 12-step program. You might want to check into that. And I didn't, you know, for months. How dare you, you know, share that with me? You know, well, what a gift. What a tremendous gift. And six months later, I... I, uh, through my desperation, I remember watching a show called Intervention. I was always interested in those types of things. Uh, the day before I came in, August 17th, I had had, um, you know, my typical three fast food meals, you know, for for a family of four, but it was all for me. Um, and, and, you know, candy and, 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 and sugary dessert items and, and, uh, and, and other things in between. That was a typical day for me. It was not out of the ordinary. And I was watching a show after a you know, in the evening after a long day of work. And it just hit me that these two brothers, 18 heroin addicts, and, and just as they shared the, the, the degradation and the hopelessness and the, and the powerlessness, it just hit me in a certain way 
that I literally walked from the TV over to my computer and looked and punched up, you know, OA.org, and the rest was history. I was good. God had his grip on me at that point now, and he was going to drag me there, and I was at a meeting the next afternoon. I, as a matter of fact, that night I called Barnes & Noble to see how late they were open because I wanted to get some literature. I didn't know what, but I thought there might be something there. And I was able to get something. Uh, I don't believe it was the big book yet. But I showed up to the meeting, and, um, you know, on, on August, uh, I believe it was August 18th. And um, I want to, uh, how am I doing on time, Leah? Am I okay? Absolutely. We're good. Keep going. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm going to keep going then. Um, I journal every day, so I, uh, if, I hope no one... Um, it's funny if you if I'm offending anybody then you're then I'm you know um, you're offended by God's handiwork. <laughs> if I if anyone is um, if anyone is getting anything out of positive out of what I say then it's all all you're, you know you're you're complimenting God's handiwork. Let me read to you a portion of my very first journal entry, August 18th. Today was my first day at an OA meeting. This is this is exactly what I wrote. I can't believe I took the plunge, but in retrospect, I'm so glad I finally decided to do this. It feels empowering. Although at this writing at 3.18 p.m., I'm hungry and battling my binge demons at the moment. Like so often in my adult life, as they said, as they said today in the meeting, you have to work the program. So that's what I'm doing right now by journaling about my feelings, experiences, etc. I, I was the only guy at the meeting. Sounds like OA. Uh, I feel that way in vision for you sometimes, but that, we're going to change that, Leah. Uh, well, it was a noon meeting, so not entirely unexpected. There was a total of about 10 women and me. Each person was different, but all shared compulsive eating tendencies. Some were binge and purge people. Even the group leader described herself as a bulimic. The meeting was opened by the leader, welcoming, welcoming us new people. There was a woman um, who, was, uh, who had just dropped off her kids at a daycare center. Um, you know, they read, uh, the leader read a few things about the OA group, the purpose, et cetera. Then it seemed each meeting will have a reading from one of the, the books. <clears throat> After that was completed, she opened it up to individual uh, sharing. And then I said, I have to say that the group was almost exactly like the AA meetings in the movies where each person identifies their first name followed by, I'm a compulsive overeater. That's a bit strange. This, of course, was followed by a group echo of, hi, so-and-so. I couldn't get myself to follow this protocol in the beginning, but I began to get the hang of it. This group seemed very democratic in the sense that each person shared without monopolizing too much time. The women were between, you know, certain ages I wrote down, um, See what else I say here. One, uh, oh, here we go. Um, as I'm writing, I feel I'm feeling hungry. I need to eat something soon, but what? They spoke about abstinence. What a concept. Sounds so AA to me, but it does make sense. I mean, those of us who have been out of control with lives that have become unmanageable need to abstain from compulsive overeating and compulsive eating behaviors. Um, and then I go on, you know, and um, and I mention again, you know, I, I said, oh, the last statement. So what am I feeling at this moment? Well, other than hungry, I'm feeling that I want or need a comforting feeling. Maybe this is what withdrawal feels like. Ah, 
They're smart. They're smart one Weight Watchers in the freezer. But ugh, it's only 3.46 p.m. Perhaps a walk? Yes, that's what I'll do. See, I came into the meeting not, you know, I hope you're here, you know, I didn't have a lot of clarity. You know, might be someone on the line that's just trying to figure all this out and you want to suck up all this. I wanted to, I wanted to go out and make amends that day, you know. And, uh, and then, you know, and then invariably we learn that this program in its totality is about understanding, you know, I slowly, slowly began to understand about the powerless nature of this disease, the fact that I have a twofold illness that I embrace today, an allergy to the body, that when I take in my substance, something happens in my brain that, uh, that, that, you know, that motivates me to want more and more and more. I don't need to understand it at the physiological level. I don't give a crap. It just exists for me. It's my truth. And I have evidence, experiential evidence, that shows that that's true. So I gave up the debating society. And then I learned that the second aspect of my disease, the far greater part of it, is this, this notion of an obsession of the mind. And that's the thing that keeps leading me back to go play in traffic. It keeps leading me back to... Uh, you know, to eat more and more and more when I know it's killing me. I couldn't put together an hour. I couldn't stay out of the food. What is that? Even when I put the food down, was, it seemed like it was the most dangerous time for me because when I put the food down, whether it was for a few hours or a day, I was at the greatest risk because the obsession of mine would take hold of me and it would squeeze me and eventually like the person that just holds their breath. Go hold, go, you know, hold your breath for a few seconds. See how long that lasts. That was me holding my breath. And eventually, no matter how great my intent, no matter how desirous that I wanted to just figure this out, I would come up for air. Another donut, another fast food meal with shame and disgust and horror the dreaded four horsemen, all that stuff resonated with me, but I couldn't figure it out. But shouldn't I be able to? Like, I, I mean, I had every book, I had every, and I could, I could really, you know, absorb information. Just give me a track to run on, but it, but it better be a track to run on, so to speak, that makes sense to me and that I want to do because I'm in control. I'm the master of my destiny wrong and it took me time to learn that that it was through surrender and through acknowledgement of the powerless aspects of this disease that i am truly powerless over this it was only through that surrender that i could get to a place that's that that i said to my innermost self i am willing to do anything you want me to stand on my head you want me to run naked in the street well, maybe not that. That'd scare everybody. But, you know, whatever you want me to do is my point. Um, I, would, I was willing to do, as willing as the dying are. And, uh, and as, long as, I, as long as I continue to t try to take back control and take my will back, that was just an indication to me that I, that I hadn't fully embraced the powerlessness of this disease to my innermost self. And I had some step one work to do. But that was pretty easy for me to get to that point. But then what happened to me, and, and maybe you've had a similar experience, is, you know, there is withdrawal. 
You know, there there is this concept of withdrawal. And I remember an early sponsor saying, you know, a price had to be paid. You know, this program is simple, simple construct, right? Price had to be paid. And he said, you have to be willing to go through a period of uncomfortability. Now, that made sense to me because, boy, was I feeling uncomfortable. I can't do it. I'm too hungry. You tell me to call someone and use the tools and so forth. Yeah, I'll call them when everything's going good. But the moment calamity strikes, the moment um, I really want to pick up the food, I don't want to talk to you. You'll just remind me of, uh, of, of my disease. And maybe you'll try to talk me out of it or something. So I, I wouldn't use those tools appropriately. But what happened is I learned, and this is the, the, the if I could share anything that sticks with you, the foundation for me is, and we've heard it many times, and if I offend anyone, it's not intentional. Because we hear it so much that it could just be, ugh, enough already about the steps, the steps, the steps. What I've learned, and I'm a slow learner, is that I had to work the steps in order to affect a complete psychic change, a complete spiritual transformation, complete spiritual awakening, if you will. And that happened for me by working the steps. And no matter how much I wanted to figure out the connection between the two, what is the theoretical basis? Where's the research that shows that works? All I knew is I heard people like Leah and many, many others in face-to-face meetings and telephone meetings that, you know, that they, I, I, I felt the congruence of their lives. I knew that they were human, that they couldn't have an experience outside a human experience that, you know, that, that, excuse my language, that shit happens in their life. Yes, calamity comes, but somehow they, their, their roots seemed to grasp a new soil. And I wanted that. I wanted that desperately. And what they told me is they weren't talking about food plans. Yeah, they said, you know, the substance has to be down. Okay, I can, I can understand that. But that was it. That was as far as, you know, it's not like we come to these meetings, at least vision for you, and I say, all right, let's, let's talk about, you know, food plants. There's as many different food plans as there are anything, and that's not the essence of this program. Of course we need to, we, we need to analyze and understand what foods and get very honest with ourselves on what foods cause us issues. Look, there might be someone out there that has binged on broccoli or water. Or, I mean, I mean, there may be. Statistically speaking, there probably is someone. But that wasn't the case for me. But Doritos, salty, savory, crunchy, sugary dessert items. Look, I don't binge on, um, on a bowl of table sugar, but I bet there might be someone that did. I never ate butter right out of a, but I know some people that have. The point being is that you know, the food plan is, is that, that's your ticket in the door to get really clear and honest about what you eat for entertainment, what has nothing to do with your hunger. You're just filling, uh, as I did, a hole that is unfillable. It was a spirit, I was spiritually sick, and I was, uh, and, and I was looking to fill a hole that, would, that there, there's no amount of food that could fill that hole. And so by working the steps somehow, through those acknowledgement steps and the declaration, acknowledgement of who I am, who who am I in terms of this disease? Am I one of you? If not, I'm just going to accept it and go out and do some more research. And maybe the disease will bloody me up enough where I'll come back, God willing. 
But beyond that, after I did the acknowledgement early on, and I got to that declaration step with step three, just making a decision, you know, and, and step two, I don't want to do short shrift on that, you know, there was a process of coming to believe because I'm not a religious person by any standards, but I'm, but I'm really very spiritual these days. I know there is a God. I know God is not me. And I know that I rely on this, on this force every day, and I know my life has changed as a direct result of it. It's unmistakable. So I, I did, it was a, a process of coming to believe. Step three, making a decision. Doesn't say I do anything other than made a decision. To what? To move forward with the next steps. When? Six months from now? Next, next, next. I like what Harlan says. Next. I don't have time. I'll be dead. I've already experienced, you know, almost dying. Um, I'd be dead. I, I do not have time to play around with this. I need to step up and to begin to work those action steps. And if I have a sponsor that, you know, is, is advocating for some other type of thing, then I better find a new sponsor. If that's offensive to anyone, I do apologize. But that's just been my experience. Um, I, I had to, you know, be willing to work the steps. So four, I had to take a personal inventory. You know what I needed for a personal inventory? I'd like to tell you lists with columns and so forth. And because, you know, for me, I love, I love spreadsheets, man. Spreadsheets excite me. You know, it's all great. But then I start thinking that the spreadsheet is, is the primary thing. <laughs> no, no, we know that. Really all I need for step four, in my, in my opinion, uh, a pencil or pen and a pad of paper and a dose of honesty. That's it. That's what I need for step four. Step four is, you know, I mean, yeah, we have columns that, you know, uh, but I mean, if you go back to our history and you look, you know, Bill and Dr. Bob and some of the early uh, pioneers in this program, um, spreadsheets, maybe it would have been nice. Maybe they would have been, what, more sober? I don't know, for 25 years. They just understood that step four and five, you know, step four was about taking an honest inventory you know, about uh, and cleaning up our side of the street, cleaning up that mess, all that mess that I shared with you, the causes and conditions and the mess. And then for me, you know, once I was able to do that, then moving through, you know, the willingness of six and the humility or teachability through seven, and then eight and nine was let's, you know, let's get down to business here. And, uh, and, let, and let's, through a guided sponsor, you know, let's make those amends and clean up our side of the street. Um, it was only then that I can get and live in 10, 11, and 12. And I know that's sort of like code speak. It was to me when I first heard it. But I know it today. 10 is I just, I, different people do it different ways, but 10 for me is I just look at, you know, my, my fears and my resentments every day immediately. You know, and I examine that and I speak to someone about it. I pray, you know, that God will help me remove those defects. And I'm right on it, right on it with 10. And sometimes it's a contemplative step. It's, you know, some people feel more comfortable writing those things down. Um, but I do it every day without mistake. And 11, you know, prayer, you know, because I need to understand. This is just me. I need to understand what is God's will for me today? How can I be of maximum service to you today, God? 
you have brought me through this miracle, that you've given me this miracle, your handiwork. My life is, is, is unbelievable today in the midst of a father who's got Alzheimer's. So lest you think that my life is, uh, well, yeah, Larry, if I had his life, I'd be happy too. He's got a job. He's got, let me tell you, I, my life is no different than anyone else's. I have sick relatives. I have uh, a daughter that wanted to go out to the Rocky, Rocky Horror Picture Show with some friends, um, you know, not getting back till three in the morning. Great kid, but I, I had to, uh, I wanted to be a friend and say yes. That was every every family I wanted. I wanted to be a friend, but I'm not. I'm her parent, and um, and I just I just uh, I didn't feel good about it. There's some snow and, and, and ice, and you know, and, and driving, and nothing really good happens at one two in the morning. I made decisions. The point is, is that with her mother, by the way, you know, we can make those decisions together, and we can talk to Beth together you know, in a collaborative way and just, and I can be honest with, I can be honest with Beth. I don't have to make up things. I can say, Beth, it's just a risk that mommy and I are not willing to take. Oh, but you know, but, but my friends are going and we're getting dressed up and, and we'll be, you know, what if, uh, you know, and all the negotiation and I had to be able to say, you know, I'm just not comfortable with it. You know, I love you. I don't, I know you're going to be disappointed. Um, I don't have to justify or I can, I can just be honest with her. I'm honest today. You know, I don't have to screw my employer out of a penny, a pencil, or this or that. You know, I live to the best of my ability with integrity today because that is the person that God has allowed me to be today. And, you know, what I would say today is now through step 12, step 12 is, I think I said it yesterday, I pick on Leah because I, I can pick on a lot of people um, in a good way, that, you know, it's like, Carrying the message. What does what what Leah need to carry the message? You know, some of these people that have been around 20, 30 years, for what? You know, you, you, you're done. You're good. It's not likely you're going to eat baloney. Baloney. That's one thing that Leah and others get something out of it by carrying the message. It's an honor and a privilege, and it feels wonderful to be able to see. Don't ever miss that. Boy, oh boy, I would have missed that opportunity. It's the greatest aspect of my disease today that I get to see other people recover slowly, some slowly, some quickly, work the program, it'll happen, you know, and, um, and so that's why they show up because it's a duty and obligation and honor so much as, you know, to whom much has been given, much is indeed expected. So the fact that, you know, that, that, that it also by sharing, you know, it helps me, that's great. Absolutely, but it's not my primary motivation. When I say a taker, I don't mean that in, ne in a negative way. When I came, most people coming into the program, we take, we take, we take. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's designed that way. And those, those that, that, that have been given this gift, we're happy to, to, to give, you know. We get so much. We've received so much. And sometimes I think, you know, the person that someone would see today, they see Larry Cahan today. They think he's a swell guy, and I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty swell guy <laughs> most of the time. I, I think like, boy, oh, boy, watch out. The next person for a partnership with me, she's going to be one lucky gal, right? I don't know. But, um, but you know, I, I, I am, by, by the grace of God, I'm a decent guy today, and he accomplished all that. All I did was row the boat and follow the directions, simple directions by working these steps. But, um, you know, what I would say is I'm a better father 
I teach at a local college. I'm a better teacher. You know, I'm so grateful for what's been given to me that I carry that and people respond to it. You know, uh, people really respond to it. And my life, I do have a life beyond my wildest dreams today. Um, so with that, I don't know how much time I've taken, Leah, but I think I'm going to end it there. And, um, and, and I, what I will say is I'm going to give my phone number. If anyone's inclined, who knows, maybe it'd be like, I'm not calling you, buddy. Um, uh, but my phone number is 630-205-2848. Again, that's 630-205-2848. If you're out of the country, boy, I sound like Harlan. I don't think I'll be as popular. That guy's, that guy's amazing. Um, but I'm going to give my email address for anybody out of the country. I do get on occasion. That might be the easiest way to communicate. But anybody can use my email address. I'm, it's a pleasure to help anybody. And that email address would be lrrkhn, as in Nancy, at gmail.com. And that's lrrkhn at gmail.com. And with that, I will pass. Thanks for the opportunity. Larry, thank you so much for your message of hope and possibility this morning. Greatly appreciated. And now we're going to open up the floor for questions. If you have a question. The phone number again, I'm sorry. Certainly. That number is 630-205. Two eight four eight. Any questions for Larry this morning? You'll need to press star one to unmute. This is Mary Lee in California. Go ahead, Mary Lee. So, Larry, could you please share what your your daily routine, or more importantly, your morning routine is? Thank you. Absolutely. Was that Leah? Was that Mary Lynn? Did I get that right? I'm hearing Mary Lee. Mary Lee. Okay, Mary Lee. Thank you for the question. Um, that's a great question. And everything I'll share has just been handed down to me. Things that I've seen through people that that I respect and, and, and they live a spiritual life, which is great. Yes, I do. I do the same things um, every morning. Um, I get up in the morning. I'm an early guy. I could be a three or four in the morning guy. I just wake up. But when I get up, whatever time, I get on my knees and I pray. And what do I pray? Uh, For me, I've memorized uh, early on the step three prayer and the step seven prayer. So, you know, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. And uh, and then the step seven prayer as well. Um, and then from there, part of my routine is I read um, the big book. The big book is a textbook for me. That was what I was taught, and that's what's worked for me. Um, and so I read the big book. We study it in the vision for you. That's what's so attractive about this program. Um, I find that reading the literature not just kind of flipping around. I used to do it like a crazy eight ball, shake up my big book, open it up. Is it a good day, bad day? What's going on? You know, it doesn't work that way. I'm systematically, and when I finish through the first 164 pages, I go back and start over. Um, So I'm reading a a paragraph or two, sometimes more. 
uh, from there, I get on my computer and um, and I journal. And I've had a journal. I'd like to tell you it's every day. It's not. Uh, these days, it's every day. Um, that tends to work well with me. What do I write? I shared what I wrote the very first day. Let me read my uh, entry. Bear with me here. I will read my most recent entry. So sometimes it's just kind of, let's see. Um, well, I always say, you know, thank you, God. I pray that you will show me how I can be of maximum service to you today. I wish to help those that are still suffering in this disease. It's Saturday morning about 5 a.m. And tomorrow, oh, this was, actually, that wasn't that, that was yesterday. I'll just read it. And tomorrow I will be qualifying in the Vision for You telephone meeting um, at 7.30 a.m. Central. I'm very grateful that I can serve in this way. I've been, I've been given so much by you, God. This program has lifted me from the depths of despair. Thank you, God. Help me to find the right words to help my fellows. I don't know if I did, but that was yesterday's thing, but that's what I asked for. And so sometimes it's, it's very prayerful. Sometimes it's just kind of a, if I have any resentments and things, sometimes I may put them down on paper, and it's not a uh, taking that other person's inventory. Um, the other thing I do every day um, is I read the promises because I want to be reminded always that the promises have indeed come true for me. They have. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the morning routine. Also, page 417 in the big book I love because I, as a lot of people in the disease, um, have a, not just people in life in general, have a problem. I have a problem with acceptance. And so um, every day I read page 417, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, and thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. So when other people step on my toes, seemingly, um, I, I pray for them, not in a condescending way, but I pray for them for what I want for myself because there was a sponsor that suggested that and I thought he was off his rocker and I tried it and lo and behold, it worked. It softened my heart. I don't know what it did. God works in mysterious ways. So those are some of the things I do in the morning. Thanks for the question. Yes, thank you, Mary Lee, very much. And who's next with a question for Larry this morning? Uh, Liz from New Hampshire. Liz, go ahead. Larry, first of all, I want to thank you so much. And uh, I just want to begin by saying um, you apologized for bringing up the steps. And uh, I just personally want to say I never, ever feel that the steps can be brought up too much. Um, so I just want to say thank you for bringing up the steps and thank you for your emphasis on the big book. Um, and thank you for your friendship. Um, I wanted to ask you how you feel that there can be more emphasis on the big book and the steps in OA meetings because my experience is there isn't enough of both in OA meetings, um, especially the big book and the steps. There's a lot of emphasis on the tools, but there is not a lot of emphasis on the steps. And, you know, the big book specifically teaches us how to recover and how to uh, 
not only find a spiritual awakening, but to be free of the obsession of food and therefore to be able to be free of, uh, um, you know, that to, to be free of the obsession and therefore to be um, abstinent and to be peacefully and contentedly abstinent. Thanks. Oh, Liz, thank you for the question and, and your friendship as well. Uh, uh, this fellowship's beautiful. Um, yeah, the uh, I agree, um, and uh, and I have a definite answer about that. Um, I used to, you know, I used to avoid meetings. You know, I heard things like, well, you know, I'd hear from people that have been in program a while, perhaps the blind leading the blind, um, and make a comment like, well, I don't, you know, they don't have what I want. You know, it's not the salad bar that has what I want. And so I'm going to stay away from that. I don't have that belief anymore. I don't believe in the factionalization of the program. So more specific to your question, like yesterday, I went to a meeting, you know, and, and maybe by certain standards there there was, as you described, Liz, more discussion about the mess and uh, more discussion about, you know, tools and, and so forth, which are all very, very necessary, you know. But perhaps... Um, not the rec- recovery that, that I get from, from a meeting like Vision for You and so forth. But now I see it as my obligation and my duty and my pleasure, as I was there yesterday, to go there and, uh, and carry my message. So I think as we recover and become recovered, I used to get kind of eh, recovered. Huh? No, I, I am indeed recovered just for today by doing what I by, by doing you know what I what I've been doing, that if I carry that message, the message I carried yesterday um, while all that was being shared, um, and I had great acceptance, God has given me that, the ability to accept, you know, the mess and and some of the things, because part of me would want to throw, you know, just kind of jump in and tell everyone, this is what you should be doing, and this is how you do it, and do it, do it, do it. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, I can, particularly when I was in the throes of the disease, and I wasn't a bad person, um, that message of, you know, preaching with an aggressive, you must, you know, it, um, it just never sat well with me. So the message I carried is just one of peace and love and acceptance and saying, this is what's worked for me, just like today, you know, and, 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 uh, and it's working the steps. That's the only thing. The tools never brought about a spiritual awakening for me. The tools are beautiful and wonderful and necessary to keep me on the beam of recovery, but no meeting. And I, and I shared this, and this stuck with someone because they mentioned it a couple weeks ago from the same meeting. She, she said it stuck with her. I said, you know, I said, I've been to meetings. I said, this very meeting. And as soon as I left, I went to three fast food restaurants. I went to, I wanted to name them within the span of an hour and binge my brains out. Meeting makers make it. It didn't make me made me into something, but it wasn't what I wanted to be. It wasn't what God intended. So an answer to your question is um, that we are obligated, I feel, to carry the message, even in those places, maybe more so. It's great to come to Vision for you, and I love it. I love it. It's, it's wonderful to be among my fellows there. Um, but I feel that I, I have an obligation to go elsewhere because there are people that are suffering, and, and I'm not in charge. I don't control their recovery. Whatever comes out of me and whatever resonates with them, I believe comes from God. I'm just a channel of God's handiwork, period. So thanks for the question, Liz. Yes, thank you, Liz, very much. Who's next? Hi, I, have, I have a question. My name is Gail. I live in Massachusetts. Hi, Gail, your turn. 
Oh, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful, wonderful meeting. And uh, thank you so much, Larry, for uh, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And, you know, I, I am new to a vision for you. I've done the steps the way uh, uh, so many times, the way my sponsor told me to do them, basically. And, you know, you mentioned something about um, columns and sheets and instructions. And, you know, I, I, like yourself, you know, have gone back into the history of AA. And, and I know for a fact that they didn't have any of those. In fact, you know, Bill went right through the steps when he was in the hospital with Eddie. And, you know, there's a lot of big book step study processing going on in the program. You know, there's different you know, uh, written inventories, and uh, it's just, it's, you know, there's one from Texas, there's one from Hyannis, there's, there's the Wally P thing, there's, there's a whole bunch of them, and it's like, okay, which one do I do? I don't know. All I know is that I have to, you know, have some spiritual awakening with a power greater than myself, and, you know, if people get it through doing this uh, precise direction the way they're laid out in the big book. I don't know. It, it didn't happen that way for me. It just did not happen that way. And um, you know, I, I'd like to hear your um, your feedback on that a little little more. If you could go more into detail about all these different um, big book step studies that are out there. So uh, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Um, yeah, I uh, I know you know the couple of comments I made because I didn't make that comment about the you know the different sheets. That is not by the way, you know um, different you know sheets with columns and so forth. Uh, tools can be very effective for for people. But I think the key is not let's not confuse the tool with what we're trying to accomplish with the tool. So that's not to say tool bad. You know, pad of paper, you know, pencil, better. Not if you're not willing to be fearless and honest. It says in step four, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask Leah too to how maybe it goes against, uh, but I, I, I'd be interested. I was interested in what she's got to say about it too, but I feel that step four talks about we made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. There's a lot there. Let me be fearless and searching. So if I just used a pad of paper and a pencil, but I wasn't ready to be completely honest with myself and fearless in taking that moral inventory, um, which includes it's a balance sheet, really. You know, I wasn't all bad. There was some there were some things that God gave me that, you know, some strengths and things that was part of that inventory. But I, I needed to be fearless and very thorough. So whatever tool one uses. That's why I think the key is is a recovered sponsor, or another way of saying it is someone that really embraces, you know, the 12 steps as laid out in the first 164 pages of the big book, because that to me is the origin. Everything else is ancillary information, good supportive information, but it lays it out clearly. And as Leah, Leah always said, she was the first that introduced me to this notion that. You know, this textbook, because I use textbooks, and she's right, you know. <laughs> I'm on my, you know, intro to psychology or abnormal psychology is fourth, fifth, tenth, twelfth, you know, edition. They make changes based on new information. Um, Leah, is it inappropriate for me to ask for you to jump in? Because <laughs> I want to hear if you have anything to say about it, if that's okay. 
Hi, Gail. Thank you for your question related to the fourth step. Um, do you want to pose your question again? Yeah, yes. You know, I'm just, um, you know, confused with all these um, different ways of doing it, you know, with all these different big book study processing going on. You know, there's so much stuff on the Internet and everything. And, you know, I... I just right. am very confused. So, okay. Well, um, welcome to a vision for you, and certainly we can discuss this further at another time. Um, yes, there are a lot of a variety of big book studies out there, and I understand that it can perhaps get confusing. Um, the important thing to remember is that the elements are simple, that this book uh, that we study every day gives clear-cut directions. Um, you'll remember, and I'm just going to keep it brief so we can move on to the rest of the uh, questions here, that once you put down the food, you're dealing with the most dangerous element of your disease, <laughs> perhaps you're acquainted with it, and that's the obsession of the mind. So uh, much like the history of, um, you know, the co-founders of AA and the 100 uh, who first came together, these steps were done quickly uh, for the reason that the obsession of the mind is much like a ticking time bomb. Um, we're dealing with the greatest uh, element of the disease because we are no longer compulsively overeating at that point. The food is down, but we are thinking about compulsively overeating. So my suggestion to you would be um, to not get too, uh, you know, immersed in the variety of uh, programs out there, so to speak, to find a tour guide who has uh, who has previously uh, experienced the transformation through the work of the big book and to allow them to guide you so that you can have your own spiritual experience by following the directions of this book. And we can certainly discuss this at length another time. But welcome to you and thanks for your question. And let's move on now to another question uh, on the line. For Larry. Hi, this is Pam. May I ask a question of Larry? Of course, Pam. Go ahead. Yes, I just took myself off speaker. I hope you can still hear me. Yes. Um, yes. Um, Larry, I believe you said I only came in for half, and I will listen to the rest of it on, on recording. You gave a fascinating presentation on Pam, compulsive eater. Um, I want to know, as a psychologist, have you – I have had a, a – a situation with a with a beloved sponsor where I think that the technical term in psychology is transference. What actually happened uh, is I became like a rebellious child. I did all the steps with the, you know in accordance with the big book, but there was a lot after this you know the twelve step after going through all of them in our relationship, there was a lot of kicking and screaming and no and and I realized that what I was doing was essentially projecting my mother on her, and I wonder how much that happens you know we repaired i walked away we repaired the relationship and i'm going to get moving again and i have experienced a lot of recovery even in the midst of my kicking and screaming but i'm just wondering how do how, how do you recommend keeping the relationship with the sponsor clean because it's a long-term relationship sometimes and uh i'll i'll, I'll be quiet and, and listen for your answer thank you 
Oh, th- thanks so much, Pam. Um, yeah, you know, I, I always want to bring it back to, I mean, yeah, that's what I do for a living. And I, yes, I'm very familiar with that term. But I always want to bring it back to what has brought about recovery for me and then, and then address your direct question because I've had experience with that too. Um, you know, what I've learned in, 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 in through this spiritual awakening, which I did not have going in, it wasn't a flash for me. It was of the educational variety. So as a consequence of that, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I am much more accepting of other individuals. They are precisely where they need to be. My spiritual awakening is not dependent upon my sponsor. In fact, the big book is very clear. It's not, dis- uh, not depend- uh, dependent upon any uh, human uh, um, or, or human entity, if you will. And um, so... You know, it, for me, I've grown in my level of acceptance for all people. And they are precisely where they need to be. Sponsors are, are as infallible as the rest of us. We all, let's recall what, you know, what brought us to the room. This disease kicked us in the butt, strangled us, drowning us, choking us, you know. And um, so uh, there's a long period of reconstruction. Now, now, to your question, for me, my experience was that I've always had an issue with authority figures be it a parent, a sponsor, a boss, anybody that seemingly was in an authority type of position for me. And so that was just another great opportunity for me to learn acceptance because Larry always knew the best way, you know, except I was dying and I was a a horrible husband and, uh, you know, and I thought I was a good father, but looking back, I, I wasn't, you know, doing all that God had intended me to do. So what I would say about that is, yes, you know, after all, we wouldn't be human. Hello? Yes. Uh, can can I ask you if your number is 216? Hi. <laughs> Let me just interject here. Is number. Let me just interject here. Devarilea, hold on. We'll give the phone number out momentarily. Go ahead. Continue, Larry. Thank you. Okay, Larry, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I, I'll give my number again. Absolutely. Um, but, but to the point there that, you know, after all, we wouldn't be human if we didn't have issues with other people. Now, um, you know, in terms of, of dealing with that, to me, what, what I did was, because I did have an issue. These, you know, it was, a, it was someone who was guiding me along and it were it was it was you know was asking me through the you know through the teachings of the big book to do some things that were very uncomfortable for me, kind of the way I was telling my daughter last night she couldn't go to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show with some friends at you know at, at twelve one two and three in the morning. That's not a message. It, it was an uncomfortable message. Creates frustration. So more opportunity for acceptance. And what I found was as I continued on this process of recovery. And I became, and I had that spiritual awakening, that complete spiritual transformation, psychic change. Now I'm much more able to um, to have good, firm relationships, be it with a sponsor, a boss, a partner, anybody. My relationships are better. So my answer would be hang on and continue to work the steps. Thank you, Pam, for the question. And Devorale, you wanted contact information. Again, Larry's number is six three zero. 
630-205-2848. Can you say that again, please? I sure can. 630-205-2848. And, of course, you can find... The time Larry, uh Larry is Central Time. Of course, you can find uh, Larry's contact information on a Vision for You website. And who's next with a question for Larry this morning related to his story? Jason from Pensacola. Hey, Jason, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much, Leah, for uh, moderating, and thank you very much, Larry, for your uh, presentation. It was a um, it was very meaningful to me. Uh, there are every, uh, not every one, but there are a lot of incidents that you mentioned in your own life um, that are identical to things in mine. Um, baby aspirin was Flintstone vitamin, but same age, same thing, same cabinet. Uh, Pop-Tarts happened in college. So I really, really identified a lot. Um, like the previous question, I also missed about the last 10 minutes of what you said. You may have addressed this, but my question has to do with the evolution in your understanding of God. Um, you kind of mentioned that you weren't really going to church and kind of noticed others going to church when you were younger. And um, and through the program, you certainly sound as though you have a, a much deeper relationship with God than you've had before. But I'm curious about the actual process of that understanding and that relationship and kind of what it what it looked like and how it played out. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Jason, for the question. That's great um, to the heart of um, step two for me, really, you know, coming to believe in a power greater than myself. And, yeah, my, my history, again, I, I didn't give a lot of background, uh, but um, I had parents that were, were you know, agnostic. Um, I had one parent who was of Jewish origin, another Catholic. And um, uh, we weren't really raised uh, with... Uh, with much in the way of any sort of formal education, um, spiritual education and that sort of thing. But, you know, my process over time when, when we moved along about uh, the time of high school and we moved to a community where I saw a lot of my friends, many, most uh, were, uh, you know, going to church and uh, going to temple and, and, and different things. And, and I, you know, and I, I saw that there was something missing in my life. And uh, so that, you know, that, that, that flicker of light was awakened at that point, but I really couldn't make a whole lot of sense of it, Jason, at that point. Over time, um, I did marry, you know, my first wife was uh, Catholic, and, um, and we would spend time in church. In fact, uh, you know, I, I could be comfortable. I have an identification with my, my, my Jewish um, sort of family identity of origin. That, that was always for me, much more, um, you know, kind of a, a, a sort of a family thing built around food and closeness and warmth and love and all those things. And yes, you know, there was every so often, you know, we would, we would do some readings and things as part of a you know, family meal, you know, for different holidays and so forth. Um, and then on the other side, you know, we would go to church and I would, you know, I would hear, you know, this notions of Christ and notions of, um, of a God but it never felt really personable, personal to me. 
what what's happened with my process, Jason, is is um, slowly but surely over time that has developed into where I'm at now. Now, while I don't attend a formal um, you know church or temple um, proceeding, I, I would feel very comfortable going. I just I just don't. I'm on a daily basis. I feel like I have a personal relationship to a higher power, and it's a, it's a higher power of my own understanding, and I'm very very comfortable with it. And God, I believe God has made that happen, and um, and uh, it was not earned. There wasn't something that I did other than working these steps. I never saw it coming, but I feel reborn. I used to hear the notion of reborn, and I would associate that with like Christian fundamentalist rebirth, you know, kind of Baptist or you know, it's just some crazy notions in my mind. We all see the world through our own prism, right? And that was my prism that that was you know perhaps weakness or or uh, you know pie in the sky sort of idea. But now I live it every day, and I and um, it's it's very very comfortable for uh, very comfortable for me in my relationship to a higher power. And it's a, it's a daily thing. It's not just in the morning that I refre- reflect and pray. I, I pray throughout the day. I, I have a busy, busy day, so it's not always, you know, but I take time to pray and meditate. Um, and uh, that's where I'm at today. So hopefully that's helpful. Thank you, Jason, for the question. Anyone else this morning with question for Larry? Susan? Susan, your turn. Thank you so much, Leah and Larry. That was such a beautiful share. Um, I find that this is getting to your question. I'll just make a very quick statement. I find that having done the fourth step resentment stuff, that that's really lifted dramatically. I'm down from 100 to 2, and I continue to work on that. But the fears is another story. Despite having done a thorough fear inventory and doing them, on a semi-regular basis, granted I'm acknowledging semi-regular as opposed to daily, uh, which may be the issue, I find that there are some core fears that drove me to the food in the first place that are, are still up. And though I'm not acting out with the food, the fears are there. And I wonder if what your experience is around fear, because I have not found it to have lifted in the way that the big book describes. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for the question on fear. Um, you know, fear uh, definitely was something it says, you know, notice, you know, it talks about fear in the big book, if I can find it. We think that fear ought to be classed with stealing. And I, I have some experience with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. See, when I would steal, because I, I, I didn't share, I stole candy bars from my dad. I also stole money from the cash register, which incidentally, and I don't make this point through uh, in any way of justification. There's no justification, but I use that money for food, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, but um, stealing made me feel shameful. It made me feel, um, it scared me. Um, I was, I was incongruent. I was, um, you know, acting a certain part. We wear different masks in life, and, and that's what it was. But I knew, but based on my actions, that um, I wasn't living the life that, that God intended me for. I didn't know it at the time, but that's that's what it was. So fear, yes, should be classified as, as stealing. And, and how is fear What I'm hearing inherent in your question is, has fear changed for me? You keep in mind, I'm a guy, you know, that had... I say had past tense, I, I, you know, for just for today, had an anxiety disorder that bordered uh, panic, you know, a panic disorder. 
that really got um, very debilitating. Um, thankfully, it, it would come and go, um, you know, so I could be, uh, you know, months without it, but then it would come back. But when it came back, it came back with a vengeance. And it was also felt progressive in nature. That was while I was practicing the disease. Now, where I am with fear today, as a direct result of having this spiritual awakening and getting to a place of greater acceptance and love and peace and serenity, I have those things in my life. I'm not just saying it. But really, what, what's Larry's life really? No, it really is that way. Um, that the fears have lifted. Um, they, the promises have come true for me. It's not that uh, I am a human being. So fear, I'm, you know, we are wired to experience through the, you know, through different parts of our brain to process emotion. Fear being one of them. That fight or flight response. We all have heard about that. So, so I, I'm not going to be removed from, you know, from the human experience of, 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 of feeling fear on occasion, but it's been uh, diminished and I know what to do with the fears today. Um, I, what do I do with them? You know, I mean, what do I do with them specifically? I, um, I acknowledge them. I speak to someone I trust about them. The most recent one was I had a job insecurity fear related to my boss and a way that, you know, some communication back and forth, email, and, and I had a fear. I talked about that with someone I trusted program. Could be a sponsor. doesn't have to be. And then I prayed about it. What specifically, God? I'm scared. You know, I, I, feel, I feel scared. I'm feeling insecure with my job. You know, if I lost my job, what would I do? I need I need help. Uh, if it is your will, God, would you would you alleviate this fear? If it, if that is your will, those are the things I do today. This program is a program of action, and there are steps that I can take. And I practice these principles in all my fear affairs. When I came into program, it was a con a concept, maybe with some sense of hope that I saw in you, but I didn't necessarily think was possible for me. Today, I know, you know, they say, well, you, you don't know what you don't know. Today, I know, based on my experience, my fears have lifted significantly so. So I hope that's, um, that's helpful and will help you on <clears throat> to continue on this path of, of, of working the steps. Susan, thank you for the question. Anyone else this morning? Uh, I have a question. Hi, Devarlea. Go ahead. Um, uh, somebody uh, is trying to sponsor me in your program, and she made a remark to me that got me very upset. She said, "You, you know, I've lost 140 pounds. I went from about 325 to about 145. So I do have." a relationship with God, and I'm sorry about my voice. I got lung problems, and I'm 69 years old. I don't sound too good, but um, she made a remark, you must never, never again pick up a food you're allergic to or something like that, some kind of remark. And I remember in OA in the 70s, they told us, it's one day at a time. You never say never. You just do things one day at a time. And, you know, sometimes I have a sandwich, and, you know, basically I feel it's it's flour and sugar, but 
I don't go off and running, or sometimes I do, but for the most part, if I have a piece of bread or if I have a burrito, I don't go off and running. I, I, I'm not out of my mind all the time. I have been off the wall on cheese and nuts lately, and I had to stop that. But um, what do you think about what she said? It made me very angry. Well, I, and thank you for the question. Um, I, I'll definitely give you my opinion about it. Um, and again, I'll, I'll bring it back to acceptance of other people that they're precisely, in my opinion, they're precisely where where they need to be. And, um, and, and God's handiwork is with all of us. And, and maybe they will also transcend where they are today. But you're talking about, you know, it says in the doctor's opinion, you know, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical uh, craving for liquor. And this often requires a definitive hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. And um, the only thing I would say there is I, I personally, and I'm not, I don't speak for Larry or anybody else, just for Larry, I personally don't do really well with black and whites. I know that, you know, we talk about the word suggestion. Well, are these really suggestions? You know, to me, words are important, but I can understand, you know, a suggestion. You know, if someone suggests to me, even vehemently, even aggressively, that you must do this, you know, um, I, I don't do well with black and white type of thinking. And so for me, yes, I know that my, that my substances must be down for me to, to, for this program to allow me to experience, you know, the maximum benefit, that spiritual awakening, uh, to be of maximum benefit. And at the same time, I can understand uh, someone that, uh, you know, when you're, you know, you're given a, a very strong statement like that, that it might be, you know, it might sort of push you <laughs> in a direction like, oh, that doesn't feel really good. It puts you on the defensive and so forth. What I would say to that is, again, um, I, and I recommend this just because it was recommended for me. It's not the psychologist in me that's recommending this. This is the, the fellow compulsive overeater, you know, that was as insane as anybody wants to, is uh, page 417 on acceptance. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems. So, you know, when someone, uh, you know, when, when there's another person or place or institution, um, I, um, I have to do something in myself now, I don't blame myself. I just recognize and acknowledge it's something in myself. And, I pr- and I've prayed. I couldn't be around my sister for two minutes for many years. And lo and behold, when I had the spiritual awakening and I began to do a, f- a fearless and moral inventory and I cleaned up my side of the street, amazing how she changed. Oh, how she changed. She's this beautiful mother, beautiful person. I literally couldn't be around her for two minutes. I... I pray for, you know, uh, to, to have greater levels of acceptance, you know, so that because, because in my opinion, you know, we're all created by this, this, uh, our conception of a higher power. And, uh, and so that, that has been really helpful to me when I felt fear or resentment towards someone else brewing. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Devarilea, for the question. Anyone else? This morning, questions for Larry, star one to unmute. I think I scared them all away, Leah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, perhaps uh, all minds are cleared. This Anyone is else? Me from Michigan? Yes, go ahead. What are the four horsemen? I'm new to the program, and I, 
I heard you mention four horsemen, and I just didn't quite get it all. Leah, well, help me out here. I, I could I could take a crack at it, but I know it's at the tip of your uh, tip of your tongue. I'm sure. <laughs> well, we welcome you to the line. Uh, the four horsemen in that reference can be found on page 151, with the chapter entitled "A Vision for You." And the four horsemen are terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Anyone else this morning? Before we bid farewell, star one to unmute. Yes, Angela from New York. Angela, your turn. Can you please tell me what actually constitutes recovered? Because I hear different things. Um, Is it just running through, well, not running, but working through the 12 steps, having your foods um, that are triggers down? Um, or do you have to be at your goal weight? I'm, I'm not. Clear, I'm not really clear on that. Yeah, well, I can. I can certainly give you my my uh, my understanding of it. You know, on page uh, on the very first, well, one of the very first pages of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. To your question, and my understanding of it is, and, and my experience, direct experience of it is, that recovered. First, I'll say what it is to me and what it is not. You know, what it is, is it's a state that I'm in today, just for today, based on um, a a spiritual awakening, a spiritual transformation, which they describe, you can, you know, in the big book, in the back, you can read about um, this notion of a spiritual awakening and how, for me, it it came as an educational process over time. But it's unmistakable. And the promises on page 83 and 84 have come true for me. You can read those. And so the state of being recovered for me today, I'm really clear on what it is not, too. It is So it, it has absolutely something to do with my total spiritual transformation from the floor up, you know, all the way through. That's how I feel today. And it's unmistakable. And more importantly, in terms of the food, because I know for newcomers you come in, you know, and it's uh, you're still perhaps in the throes of the physical aspects of the disease, the disease has you by the throat. Um, The food is neutral for me today. I never quite understood that. The problem has been removed. Now, for those that it hasn't been removed, that's unmistakable too. And And I know that because I was not recovered for a long period of time. I hung around the rooms. I wanted to be sprinkled with pixie dust and somehow get this without working the steps as laid out in the first 164 pages of the big book. Not once I got as desperate as the dying are, and I began to work the steps with a, you know, with a guided person that's been through this, um, that uh, the the problem has been removed. The food does not own me. I'm not a slave of the food anymore. I, 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 I eat my food. I don't run, you know, through grocery stores. I don't, uh, you know, avoid looking at certain things. I, I, I just, the problem has been removed. But for me, it does not suggest that it is removed tomorrow. I have to remain in fit spiritual condition. And the big book lays out exactly uh, how I can achieve uh, maintaining my fit spiritual condition. I, I'm sure Leah could do a much better job of explaining, but that's been my experience. Thank you. Uh, I think you did a great job, Larry. Angela, thank you for the question. I'm sure that is a question on numerous people's minds, so we thank you. 
anyone else this morning? Yes. Hi, it's Hilda from South Carolina. Hi, Hilda. Yeah. Hi. Hi. <laughs> you know what? I, I just want to thank Larry for um, speaking on fear and how he works here, um, you know, with his, uh, you know, with his personal God, because just hearing it was just really, really beneficial because uh, I'm in so much fear and, uh, and how not to, you know, I just to turn to God and, and pray and the words you know, he said to just give me like instruction and a tool rather than picking up, which I have to say, it's my sixth day of abstinence that I've ever had in my life. I feel really grateful and great, clear and connected and everything. So I'm feeling really good for today. And, uh, but I'm still in a lot of fear. So it's good to hear, you know, uh, you know, um, speaking of fear, you know, words about that and all. So thank you, Larry. Great. Really, really appreciate you being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Hilda. Anyone else with a question before we bid farewell? Star one to unmute. Going once. Twice. And going sure. three times. Up, oh, I heard someone pop in. Share code. Hi, Cheryl. Go ahead. The the code for today. Sure. Oh, the code. Sure, I can help you with that. That's 5792 for today. Share ID 5792. Okay, well, I am assuming all minds are cleared. Larry, thank you so much for your time and energy here on the line this morning sharing your story of spiritual awakening, personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We thank you. Oh, my miracle. pleasure, Leah. Thank you. <laughs> pleasure and we're going to close the meeting today in the way that a vision for you always closes its meeting and that's from the reading on page 164 from the chapter entitled a vision for you our book is meant to be suggestive only we realize we know only a little god will constantly disclose more to you and to us ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.